I've never had coming to plate music before, so I appreciate that. Um, good morning, University Presbyterian Church. My name is John Downs, and I am the youth director here. And our text for this morning is from Psalm 130. You can find that on page 658 of the Pew Bible. Please turn there with me now. And so, as we look at Psalm 130, this is going to be another psalm of ascent, a psalm that God's people would have sung as they approached Jerusalem to participate in the feasts that God commanded. But this is also what scholars have called a penitential psalm. Uh, a penitential psalm is one in which the psalmist expresses, expresses, expresses a lament for personal sin and then moves toward a hope in the salvation from God. And the reason why I say that is because when we understand the category, when we understand the genre of the psalm, it helps us to properly interpret it and understand what we ought to know as God's people who are reading it. And so Psalm 130 gives us this wonderful picture, but also prescription for what to do with the sin in our lives. Right? So as Christians, we have to wrestle with this question, what do I do when I continue to sin as somebody who calls on the name of Jesus? And so we're going to approach this text with this question, what do I do with my sin? And we're going to look at the psalmist, and we're going to get the answer. And we're going to look at two different things. We're going to look at, one, the confession of the psalmist. And then, two, we're going to look at how the psalmist moves to a confident conviction of God's steadfast love. I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we'll get to work. So hear now the word of the Lord. Psalm 130, a psalm of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is in you that we hope this morning. Your people who have transgressed and have sinned against you, we hope in you that you are the one who will redeem us from all of our iniquity. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear from your word that you would give us the wisdom and understanding to discern what it is that you have called us to know, that we would be a people who would confess to you, cry to you in our great need, but also be confidently assured of your great love for us through your son Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen. So as you saw in the video, whitewater rafting is a lot of fun as long as you're in the boat. Um, and so we had this wonderful opportunity at camp to whitewater raft down the Ocoee River in Tennessee. And there were these beautiful mountains, these beautiful trees, and this beautiful water that you would kind of go down as the river took you down. Uh, but... There were some parts that were a little rough. They were a little 
rocky. And so there was one time in particular that we were going along. I was in a boat and all of a sudden I wasn't in the boat anymore. And whitewater rafting was not as fun as it had been. Uh, I got tossed from the boat, tossed into the rapids, and I was smashed down and down and down underneath the water. And I would bob up because I had a life jacket on, safety first. And I would get smashed down again and then bob back up. And in that moment, I wasn't afraid necessarily, but there was a nervousness because I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. It wasn't easy and fun anymore. And so this is what we see in the opening of Psalm 130. The psalmist is not where he's supposed to be. Life isn't easy and fun anymore. And so what we look at when we first look at this psalm is we see in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. You see, this psalm begins with a cry and a confession, a confession of location. The psalmist is in the depths. And this word in Hebrew, the depths, it's usually affiliated with a place of distress and chaos, typically having to do with the sea or the ocean, right? The Israelites were a landlocked people. They weren't used to traveling on the water. And so when they would think of a place of chaos and confusion and despair, that would have been the ocean, all right? So being in the depths would naturally elicit a cry to God for help. And so the psalmist has fallen out of the boat, as it were, and he's crying out to God, confessing his location. But these depths are not some generic body of troubled water. We we know from the text that these depths are specifically the result of the psalmist's sin. If you look down in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist confesses, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And so in verse 3, with this admission, this confession that God would mark iniquities, we can logically infer that the depths that the psalmist is in is as a direct result of his own personal iniquity. Right? So these are not the result of a depression or a generalized anxiety, like they are in some other psalms. These depths are not the result of righteous people being attacked by the wicked, as they are in other psalms. These depths are specifically the result of a personal sin and a personal iniquity of which all people are guilty, right? The Bible is abundantly clear in in the book of Isaiah 53, especially that all of us, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And as a result, the Lord has laid our iniquity upon Jesus. And so all of us have accrued some level of iniquity before God. And so as we look at this psalm, as we see this confession of location and this confession of iniquity, there's a couple implications that we can extract that as we as Christians, how we might respond to sin in our lives. And the first implication is this. Christian, you should not be surprised when you sin, right? This psalmist is writing as a member of God's covenant community for the covenant community, Right? So this psalm was for God's people then, and it's for God's people now. Alright? And so, that assumes that all of us people who belong to God are going to experience the depths. All of us are going to sin and experience the depths. So one, we should not be surprised when we sin and find ourselves in the depths. 
The second implication is this. Christian, you should not look inward to yourself to find the strength to make it through the depths. Right? We have this cultural narrative that sends us this message that we are all uh, smart enough, we are all strong enough, we are all good-looking enough, we are all competent enough to overcome any problem that would ever come our way. All we have to do is look inside and find the strength to persevere. Right? We love those stories. We love those stories that display people enduring through all kinds of suffering, overcoming the odds. But that's not the reality that we experience as fallen sinners who have accrued this iniquity. You see, the problem with looking in yourself to find the strength to persevere, when you look inside yourself, you see the very thing that puts you in the depths in the first place. Right? You look inside your heart and what do you find? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is wicked and desperately sick and deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? So if you look inside to find the strength to make it through your troubles and trials that come from your sin, you're only going to find more of what put you there in the first place. You cannot get out of the depths on your own. But... Another thing that we learn from this psalm is that while you cannot get out of the depths on your own, you are never in the depths alone, right? So the psalmist is still able to cry to God from the depths. And so we see this one aspect of confession, right? The psalmist confesses his location and his need, but we also see this confession, as it were, of truths about who God is, right? In verse 3, the psalmist confesses, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So in verse 3, the psalmist confesses that God is a righteous judge. But then in verse 4, the psalmist goes on to say, But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. And so at the same time the psalmist confesses the righteous judge of God, he also confesses, the wonderful, steadfast assurance of forgiveness that our God has for us, his people. And so the psalmist cries out to a God who is not only powerful and righteous and holy enough to mark iniquities, but a God who is gentle and close and loving enough to forgive us of our sins. And I think that the psalmist illustrates this in the text, the way that he writes the very words of the psalm. If you look, there are four couplets, four pairings of verses in this psalm. And you'll notice that the psalmist writes, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, all capitals. And then in verse 2, O Lord, capital L only. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, all capitals. Verse 4, but with the or second part of verse 3, O Lord, capital L. Verse 5, Lord, all capitals. Verse 6, Lord, capital L. The psalmist, as he's writing this, is alternating between the two Hebrew words, Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh, all caps, meaning the special, privileged, covenantal name of God's people. The name that God revealed to Moses as he redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt and gave them the Ten Commandments, right? The name that God says, I am Yahweh who rescued you from slavery. Don't have any gods before me, he says in Exodus chapter 20. Verses 2 and 3. Yahweh implies this level of relationship. But then, kind of as a contrast, Adonai is this name that emphasizes authority 
over relationship. It was often used by prophets who were announcing some kind of prophetic judgment from God that carried this weight of God himself. All right. So the psalmist doesn't just confess his need, his location, and his desire for mercy. He confesses these truths about who God is, the God who has drawn near to us as Yahweh, the God who has related to us, but also Adonai, the God who is powerful enough to deal with our sin. And Christians, we need both of those things. We need to know that God is not far off, that God is not removed from us when we sin. But we also need to know that our God is powerful enough and authoritative enough to deal with our sin, to offer us forgiveness. And you see, we get no clearer picture of these two attributes of God coming together than at the cross of Christ. Because it is at the cross that God is both just, punishing sin, putting all of our iniquity upon Jesus, but then the justifier. The one who, because we believe in Jesus, get all of his righteousness so that we are no longer condemned for our sin. So brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, when you sin, would you please confess your need to your God? But would you also confess these truths about God that he does hear you and he's powerful enough to do something about your sin? Because as you confess this need as you confess your iniquity and you begin to confess the reality of who God is and what he has done for you, the focus begins to shift. Instead of looking at your own station, instead of looking at your own situation, instead of looking at your own need, you get to focus on who this God is and what he has done for you. And we see this textually happening in the psalm because there's this distinctive shift from verse 4 moving into verse 5, right? And the, the highlight, the crux of that is this reality that with God there is forgiveness so that he may be feared. All right, this is the kind of hinge on which the psalm hangs, I think, right? So this is not a fear that says, oh no, I messed up, dad's going to come whoop me. It's not a fear that's afraid of our dad. It's rather a fear that says, my dad loves me so much so that when I mess up, I can run to him and he can do something about it, right? This is what leads us to this confident conviction of who God is. And it's how we see the psalmist move forward through the psalm after the shift into verse 5. So in verse 5, we see this beginning of a confident conviction. And just by way of definition, I know that in Christian Christian language, Christianese, we often talk about conviction, meaning that, that feeling of, oh no, I've done something wrong. But what I'm using it as, uh, I'm using it as this kind of confident assurance, right? So when I say conviction, I don't mean I feel bad because of sin. I'm saying, I know that God loves me through Christ. So confident, confident conviction we see starting in verse 5, right? The address shifts from the personal to the corporate. All right, verse 1 through 4, there's this personal me and Jesus kind of relationship. But in verse 5, the the psalmist starts to exhort the congregation, starts to exhort and address the people around him, right? And so in verse 5, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And so the psalmist is moving from, is shifting from, looking at his own position in the depths, looking at his own need, to the provision that he has through Yahweh. Right? And the reason why I think we can be assured of this conviction is that, example number one, the psalmist is waiting. 
So even though the psalmist is here in the depths, out of the boat, full of despair, full of iniquity, the psalmist is waiting on the Lord. You see, he's not trying to dig himself out of the pit. He's not trying to swim back to the boat. He's not trying to grab onto his own bootstraps and pull himself up. No, he is waiting on the Lord. And this is not a generic waiting of, just wait, it'll get better. Time will heal all wounds. No, that's not what this psalmist is doing. He is waiting particularly with a focused look at his God and what God has revealed through his word. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord in verse 5. My soul waits. His whole being is focused on and waiting for God. And then more particularly, he goes on to explain, my soul waits and in his word I hope. You see, this word could mean a prophetic judgment. This could be a promise through ages past. It could be anything God has revealed. But regardless of what that word specifically is, the psalmist is looking to the revelation of God as the object of his waiting. So here's the implication. Christian, when you struggle with sin, turn to God's word. When you struggle with sin, rehearse God's promises to you. Look at the word which does not return void. Go to God's word. Be reminded of who you are. Be reminded of your great need. But even more so, be reminded of the wonderful reality of redemption that you have through God in Christ. Would you wait on God by leaning on his word? And then the psalmist goes on to emphasize this waiting. By way of repetition. In verse 6 he repeats. My soul waits for the Lord. And then repeats this line twice. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. You see watchmen would have been at the posts. On the walls or in the towers. Waiting for that first hint of the sunrise. Waiting for the morning to come. So that they could announce it. And so what we are learning as the psalmist uses this image is that we can be just as confident in our Lord as the watchman is confident that the morning will come. We can have just as much confidence that we will have redemption in God just as we are confident that the morning will come. And then we moved to the second example of conviction. We moved from waiting into hoping In verse 7, the psalmist continues to exhort the congregation saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see in this last couplet, verses 7 and 8, the psalmist only uses the term Yahweh. He does not use the term Adonai. And then he also uses the special covenant name of God's people, Israel. And so in verses 7 and 8, we end with this kind of crescendoed hope that through God, God's special covenant people have all the redemption they could ever need. Where the psalm starts in the depths, crying out to God, it moves up to this unparalleled height with the confidence knowing that God's people will experience all the redemption that God has promised. You see, Hope is the direct result of belonging to God, right? Hope is this confident conviction that the future 
that God promised will come about despite your present circumstances. So hope is the belief that even though you have sinned greatly and you have accrued great iniquity against your God, hope is the assurance that in Christ you will receive plenteous redemption and that God will redeem you from all of your iniquities. So despite whatever present reality you have brought into church this morning, whether you've had a great week and you have no need to feel guilty about anything, or you've had a horrible week and you've done that thing again that you said you would never do and you're now crushed and in the depths, Christian, you who belong to God through Christ have the hope that you will experience this plentiful redemption. And so we have to ask this question, What about all of us? Are we actively hoping in God or are we actively hoping in something else, right? Because it's entirely possible to be in the midst of Israel, right? To be in the midst of God's people and to say that you draw near to him with your lips, but to be far from him in your heart, Isaiah 29, 13. These people draw near with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So we have to ask, where is your hope? Does it lie in the God who made you and called you to himself? Because if we're honest, if I'm being honest, I'm not always like this. I don't always sin and then immediately run to God with a hope of plenteous redemption. You know, if we're honest, I think, I think we're prone to these if-only statements. Like, I wouldn't struggle with sin if only, right? I wouldn't struggle with anger so much if my kids, if only my kids would listen to me. Or I wouldn't struggle with anger if only my parents would get off my back. right? I wouldn't struggle with lust if only my spouse would attend to my needs on a more regular basis. right? I wouldn't struggle with anxiety if only I had a few more zeros in my bank account or my husband would finally get a better job. right? We're prone to these if-onlys, these if-onlys, these things that would fix the depths of our sin and the depths of our despair. But the psalmist is teaching us that these if-onlys won't save you. The psalmist is teaching us that hope comes from not in his circumstances or his ability to fix anything. Hope comes from the God who made him and the God who called him back to himself in whom there is plentiful redemption. You see, when I fell out of the boat, whitewater rafting, my first inclination was to try to swim back. I wanted to get back in the boat because I wasn't in the boat and whitewater rafting wasn't fun if you're not in the boat. So you have to get back in the boat. But the guide called out to me, don't do it, wait for the shore. And so I couldn't actually swim to the boat because I was floating down the river at the same rate that the boat was going. In fact, the boat was faster because it had people paddling. So there was no chance of me getting back in that boat. But what I could be confidently assured of is that eventually I would run and hit the shore. And so the shore was this fixed point that I was supposed to fix my eyes on and kind of be guided towards as the river carried me downstream. Brothers and sisters, our God is the fixed point. He has revealed himself through his word and through his son Jesus. Our God is this fixed point that we have to look to when we are in the midst of our depth. When we are in the midst of our sin. And we can do this because God has always been. 
and always will be in the business of redeeming his people and forgiving their iniquity. Look at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned, and what does God do? God provides them covering when their coverings didn't work. And then he offered a promise, a way of restoration, a way of getting back into the garden. And then that promise was expanded upon as redemptive history unfolded, and God gave his people this system of sacrifices that they might atone for their sins, that they might have something to do when they have accrued a great iniquity. But all of these sacrifices, all of this bloodshed throughout history, it was never about the bulls and the goats and the lambs and the sheep. It was always about the blood of Jesus, our Messiah, who, when the fullness of time came, broke into time-space history while we were in the depths And he dove down into the depths and redeem us who were there that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of our God. You see, Jesus was drowned in the depths of God's wrath, as it were, so that we who have been adopted into the family of God might learn to swim in the ocean of God's grace and God's mercy for his people. Christian, you're in the family because of Jesus. So when you sin, you don't have to run and hide from your dad. You have to run to your dad who has made a way for you to always be in a relationship with him through faith in his son. So brothers and sisters, when you struggle with sin, when you wrestle with being in the depths, would you confess your location, confess your need to God, but at the same time, confess the great reality that you can wait with a hope and a conviction That God has forgiven all of your sins and there will be a day when his son returns to set all things right in which you will not struggle with sin any longer. This is the hope that we have as Christians through the gospel. And this is the picture that God paints for us in Psalm 130. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that while we were still sinners, while we were still in the depths, you sent your son Jesus to rescue us so that by faith we might be united to him, be united to you through him. Lord, we confess that we are prone to trying, to earning our salvation, but Lord, we know that that never works. We know that you only are the one who offers plenteous redemption, that you only are the reason we can hope in a future reality where we struggle with sin no longer. So, Father, I pray that these brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers would hear the word of grace that you have for your people, that in the depths of woe, we can raise to you a voice of lamentation and that you will set your people free from all their sin and their sorrow. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would fill us with a confidence and a conviction of our standing before you through faith in your cross. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.